You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. For those who don't know me, I'm Abby and I'm just part of the team here. This, uh, I was going to say this morning, but all the time. Anyway, um, I don't know if, what you wanted to be when you were younger, but I remember being really clearly asked this. And without hesitation, my response was, Will. And that was my older brother. For a large portion of my childhood, he was my total hero. To be fair, he is still quite excellent, just slightly less hero-worthy. But whatever he did, much to his annoyance, I wanted to do too. The games he played, the clothes he wore, the friends he had. At some point, this definitely tipped from sheer admiration to me beginning to compare my abilities to his and desperately trying to match him in order to impress him. He was, in fact, we both were, little adventurers. But Will would always take the lead, something about being the older brother. Um, And I do remember that sometimes I'd get really frustrated that I couldn't do what he did. I wanted to be just like him, and if not, maybe a little bit better, in order to prove myself. And as we got older, he relished in the fact he could do things much better than me. Where we lived at the time in Nepal, we had these massive trees in our garden. And my dad, which made him excellent in our eyes, had built a series of aerial walkways between all the trees. So each tree had a tree house, and then between each tree was like a walkway. So one massive rope, and then two either side in like a triangle shape. You can picture it, that we would walk across and spend hours playing with. Now, there was this one time where we had just come back from home leave um, in England and about to attend a party. And my brother and I were discussing the aerial walkway. Unfortunately, during our time away had been the monsoon season and left the walkway in not great shape. I remember looking at it with my brother and thinking it looked quite worse for wear, very damp, very frayed and very mossy. But I remember he was telling me that he was brave enough to go across it still. And of course, he did. And so I had to follow. Um, One of the ropes didn't look... By the way, my parents were great parents. They... (laughs) I don't know where they were at this point, but they did look after us. Um, But he climbed up, and one of the ropes didn't look very good at all, and he very skillfully just held onto one side and edged his way across. Something that I thought, surely I can do too. Um, So I got onto the rope, grabbed one side, lost my balance, grabbed the other, um, and that's when disaster struck. The frayed rope wasn't in a great way and, and broke and somehow got tangled in my cardigan causing me to honestly swing like Tarzan, whack onto the tree and fall, narrowly missing barbed wire, resulting in me looking like this. Oh, let's just appreciate the 90s outfit. Um, Oh, I don't need that. Um, By looking at him, his ability, his bravery, perhaps stupidity, and by comparing and thinking, I want that too, ended pretty badly for me, as you could have seen. Now, that is, in lots of ways, quite a trivial illustration of comparison. But I think it highlights that it is something we do from the youngest of ages and can often have quite a negative impact. I wonder the difference for me and my face that evening um, had I accepted that he was different, his abilities were better, and it wasn't what I needed to do in that moment. I probably would have ended up in a lot less pain. But truthfully, comparison can be an ever-present thought process for us, and if not kept in control, can be crippling. 
Aside from comparisons of my brother, I remember um, comparing how many stickers I had on my sticker chart in primary school, slightly resenting it when the girl who wasn't very nice to me got more. I compared myself as I grew up, remember looking at others who'd scored better in their coursework than me, even if I'd done well, being gutted that I hadn't done as well. I compared the size of my house or the holidays of my friends who came from more well-off families, feeling worse off as a result. I compared how tall I was or my body shape to those around me, and I could probably go on. And to be honest, some of those weren't significant. They didn't stick in my mind and eat away. They were often fleeting and something I got over quickly. But some comparisons have been harder to shift. Some have taken root, and some comparisons have knocked me off course. And the truth is, I think comparison is something maybe we can all find ourselves doing. Often we want to know how we're doing in life, and we have learned, perhaps from school or family, to look around at others and see how they are doing, to base our marker on our success ability on that of others. I wonder if that is something any of you can relate to. I wonder where we look to see how we are doing. Our neighbor, our friend, our colleagues, our family, God. This act of comparing is discussed in a social comparison theory, which was first proposed in 1954 by psychologist Liam Fessinger. And it suggested that people have an innate drive to evaluate themselves, often in comparison to others. People make all kinds of judgments about themselves. Festinger believed that we engage in this comparison process as a way of establishing a benchmark by which we can make accurate evaluations of ourselves. And one of the key ways to do that is through social comparison, or essentially analyzing ourselves in relation to others. Often our marker, whether conscious or subconscious, for how we are doing in life can be based on how we perceive others are doing. As a result, we can fall into a trap of asking questions as we survey, watch, and take in people around us. Did I do it like that? Did I do it better? How did they write that piece of work? What did the boss think of their idea? Did I do as well as them? Am I earning more? Do my children behave like theirs do? Did people laugh at my joke more? Is my house cleaner, smaller, better? Do I have the same friends? Should I be doing what my friends are doing? And I guess even in a church context, did their prayers sound better than mine? Are they asked to do more than me? Do they know the Bible better? Instead, perhaps, of standing secure in who we are, the way we've been made, and the place God has for us, we can easily let comparisons creep in, define us, and knock us off course, maybe just for a moment, or maybe for significantly longer. I wanted to spend a little bit of time this morning unpicking what happens as a result of comparison and what we can do to ensure it isn't the loudest voice in our head. The first thing comparison can do is kill contentment. I don't know if this is something you can relate to, feeling like you're doing okay and then suddenly comparing yourself to someone else and then questioning it. I recently changed jobs after a few years in senior leadership at a school. It was a different job I moved to and it meant that I was no longer leading and I had a different set of responsibilities. And I was absolutely okay with that, thankful, if anything, to have a reduced amount of stress and responsibility. I felt happy and secure and content in where the Lord had me, confident of his goodness and thankful for his provision. And then, a couple of months later, a colleague who I'd worked closely with in my previous job, and we'd kind of been at a similar stage, moved to get a job as a deputy head teacher. A job, incidentally, I didn't even want. 
But as I looked at him, the step forward he had made, the increased responsibility and I guess status, I suddenly became discontent with what I had. Even though had I not compared at all, I would have felt fine. I think it's funny, isn't it, when it's people we know. There are literally hundreds of deputy head teachers out there and it didn't bother me. But when it was someone I knew and someone I fell in line with, it got to me and I had to check myself. Comparison is dangerous because it forces us into what I've heard it be called the land of Ur. There is always someone prettier, smarter, funnier, faster, richer, or at least as we perceive. And that can cause us to keep striving for something that isn't ours to strive for or makes us think that what we have isn't good enough. What I find interesting is, while we can be there comparing ourselves to somebody else, there may be somebody looking at us and comparing themselves to us. Maybe you got that? Praying and hoping and dreaming of what we have. We are abundantly blessed. It does not mean that our lives are easy. And I'm not saying that I know your circumstances, but there are probably so many things in our lives to be utterly thankful for. The fact, right now, we can sit in a school hall and worship God together when that is something for others that would be a death sentence. Unfortunately, social media, celebrity culture, and our current climate can shower and surround us with all the things in life we think we may need in order to be happy. And this can kill contentment of what we have and where we are. In the Bible, in Hebrews 13, verse 5, it says... Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is specific, of course, to money, but I think it could be said of all things. Keep your life free from striving to be successful and be content in what you have. Keep your life free from criticizing your body and be content in what you have. Keep your life free from looking at the Instagram house and be content with what you have. Keep your life free from comparison and be content with what you have. Keep your life free from comparison and be content with who you are. By looking to others, by comparing them to what we have or haven't got can cause us to become discontent, that was seamless, with the very blessings, the very plan and the very place God has us. The second thing comparison can do is breed envy. Envy follows on from that first point. We can come, become discontent, which can easily lead to envy. Full disclosure, I had to Google the difference between jealousy and envy. Um, and psychology today define it this way. The difference between jealousy and envy is that jealousy is a fear of losing something that you have, usually a special relationship to a third person. While envy is a desire for something that another person has such as possessions, qualities, or achievements. Jealousy is often related to emotional rivalry and future scenarios, while envy is more about resentful comparison and lacking something. According to this, envy is more about resentful comparison. I'm just gonna let that sit there. I wonder how quickly our quick comparisons with each other can turn into resentful comparison. And I think there lies a danger, because it snowballs. Making a comparison, a little bit of resentment, being frustrated by them, disliking them as a result, talking about them behind their back, wanting to diminish them in order to make ourselves feel better. Now, I'm not saying this is something we do, but we must be aware that that can happen. Another danger of envy is that it can be very subtle. 
I think it can creep in and eat away, sometimes without us noticing. I don't think there can really be a positive outcome to envy. Being inspired through comparison, yes, but envy itself denotes a negative outcome. In fact, for the 56 times it is referenced in the Bible, it is essentially always telling us to run from it. In James 3, verse 16, we read, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And in Paul's letters to the early church, he frequently references envy. In Titus 3, verse 3, he wrote, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. In his letters to the Romans, he says, their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malice behavior, and gossip. And in the book of Galatians, he describes it as an act of the flesh. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. Envy is listed along with murder, malice, fits of rage, deceit. We are told if we live with it, we are being a disobedient. It is featured in a list of attributes I'm sure none of us would want to be associated with. The warning is clear. Avoid it. But when we compare to others, when we see what they have and we want it for ourselves, how quick, quickly can it harbor resentment and breed envy? There are lots of examples in the Bible of where comparison bred envy and destroyed friendships. And one example is between David and Saul. In a nutshell, Saul was chosen to be God by God to be king of the Israelites. During his time as king, David defeated Goliath and brought the Israelites to victory. At this time, Saul and David's relationship was on good terms, but things changed. Now, Saul knew that David was anointed to be future king by God, and once he felt his own authority slipping from his grasp and that God's favor had shifted, he began to grow envious of David. Saul constantly compared his own situation to David's. He saw what he had once had and how he had lost it. He saw how successful David was becoming. It says in Samuel 1:18, in everything Samuel, uh, sorry, in everything David did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And Saul saw that David had grown in popularity, the attention he got. In verse 16 we read, but all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul began to feel threatened. This increased his possessiveness over the throne and what he assumed belonged to him. David was, at the time, not interested in the throne, but simply waiting for God's timing. However, Saul sought to hold on to his kingdom even more tightly and began to persecute David. Eventually, he would lash out at David, throwing his spear at him, inciting others to slander David's character, and then later hunting him down to kill him. Saul not only resented what David had gained, he also resented what God was doing in David's life. While this is quite an extreme example, it does illustrate what began as comparison, a bit of envy, fed to resentment and ended devastatingly. 
I've heard it said that comparison can cause us to resent God's goodness in others' lives and ignore God's blessing in our own lives, demonstrating again that discontentment and envy can be so easily entwined. While comparison can kill contentment and can leave us in danger of feeling envious, thirdly, it can also draw our attention off the Lord. As a primary school teacher, the highlight of the year for me is sports day. I absolutely love it. Sometimes a little bit too much. I actually have a scar um, on my chin from when I took the teacher-parent race a little bit too seriously. Um, and was the only person, not adult, only person went to see Mrs. Harash at first aid. Um, I'd like to give the kids in my team a little bit of a prep beforehand. And one thing I always say is, like, keep your eyes on the finish line. Don't worry about anyone else. Keep your eyes on the finish line because it makes you go faster. And all these little faces would nod and beam and repeat what I say. And then what does each one do as soon as they start running? Every single time. And every single time it caused them to slow down, go a bit wonky, or worst case scenario, fall flat on their face. Mrs. Haresh was always there for that. And the same can be said of comparison. If we are spending our time looking to our left and our right to see how others are doing, we are not looking to the one who leads us. Our attention can easily be pulled away from God, his truth, his ways, and his plans. In Hebrews, we are called to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. I wonder if we are so busy looking to what others are doing as our marker of success, if it leads us to seeking that over what we have, could we miss the very thing he has for us now? What is he trying to teach us in this season? What might he be wanting to show us? Who might he be wanting us to encounter? Or even if we are more walking through a challenging season, even in the midst of our pain, what comfort can we find in him? Is he showing us ever more what it means to be loved by the Father? If we, for example, focus on how others look, comparing ourselves to them, do we miss the opportunity to learn and understand what it means to have our identity rooted in Christ, to be secure in how he made us? If we are focusing on pursuing the bigger house, spending money on the extension because that is what those around us are doing, do we miss the chance to be thankful for what we have? If we are busy looking to the job promotion that all our friends seem to be doing, are we in danger of missing the workplace that the Lord has, wants us to be and the people he wants us to be around? If we compare our clothes to others, spurring us on to update our wardrobe, are we in danger of spending our money and reducing our chance to be generous? If we are looking at the gifts someone else carries and striving to carry those gifts too, are we missing the very gifts we have and, that, and the part he wants us to bring in what we play? As it says in 1 Corinthians, I paraphrase this, but yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Looking and comparing to everyone else draws our focus off the Lord, the very unique part of the body we are made for 
and keeping us from hearing what he may be saying. I am, of course, not saying that getting an extension, seeking a job promotion, buying new clothes, or even seeking to develop gifts of the Spirit are a bad thing and we shouldn't do them, but more to challenge us on what the motivation behind our decision is. Are we fixed on those around us and driven by how to be more like them? Or are we fixed on God and driven by how to be more like him? Ultimately, the things of these worlds are temporary and we can continue to accumulate things or status or accomplishments, but we are in danger of missing being where he has us and doing what he has given us well. Um, In 2 Corinthians, just find my post-it notes. Um, In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, we are encouraged. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. And in Colossians 3 verse 2, we are reminded to set our mind on things above, not things of this earth. There is a poem I love by a lady called Anne Peterson, and I think it so beautifully demonstrates this point. The stick I made for measuring I used most every day. It helped me to compare myself with others on the way. I watched all those behind me or further down the road and would readjust the pace or lighten up my load. The only real drawback with how I ran my race was watching everything around me except my saviour's face. The danger in comparison, while killing contentment, breeding envy, can also cause us to focus on the things of this world and not the face of our saviour. Comparison itself is a natural human trait, but the danger comes when using it to define ourselves. So what can we do to ensure we don't fall into a trap of comparison? Essentially, we must learn to be content. I recognize that seems like a bit of a cop-out response considering what I've said, but it's something Paul in the Bible gives us guidance on. And if we turn to Philippians 4, verse 11 um, to 13, it says... I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It is key that he uses the phrase, I have learned, this, isn't, it's, this in itself shows us that it is not something that comes instantly or something we can just switch on. I think it is something we must be intentional with, something we must put time into, and something we learn. This is particularly important as we live in a culture which is consistently telling us not to be content, that there is always better. Rich Nathan, a retired vineyard church leader, explains to us what contentment means. The word literally means self-sufficient. Contentment had a long history in Greek philosophy. It was used by the Stoic philosophers to communicate independence from our life circumstances, having resources inside of us that cause us to be able to be independent, being able to resist the press of our circumstance. Contentment means living above our circumstances, living beyond our circumstances, living independent of our circumstances. Contentment includes having inner peace, a sense of inner tranquility, having a centeredness that doesn't rise or fall with every situation that's going on around us. 
Being a contented person is the opposite of being a barometer. Barometer meter people rise and fall with every change in pressure. Contented people are more like gyroscopes. That's a device for measuring or maintaining orientation. They are able to maintain their equilibrium even in the face of challenging circumstances. This therefore means that being content is not saying, hey, you have to be happy and okay, whatever's going on, because we cannot possibly feel like that all the time. And we have a father who loves us and longs for us to come to him with however we are feeling and be met by such love, such grace, such kindness. But being content is to accept our portion from the Lord in all situations. So how do we learn to be content? And the first is through God's strength. Paul makes that clear. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Not mine, not our partners, not our parents, but God's strength. Learning the ability to go beyond our circumstances, to rise above them and to be independent of them, is found through the strength of Christ alone. A God who, as we were reminded in Hebrews, will never leave nor forsake you. He will never abandon us. Irrespective of what we feel, we are lacking. We can never lack him, and he will never leave us. Seeking God's strength to find contentment is something we can ask for, pray for, fall on our knees in our humanness before the Lord, saying, come and fill me. Give me the strength to live in the circumstances I am in. Help me to trust you in this. Second, we need to understand who we are in him and be secure in this. Comparison can cause us to feel inadequate in who we are, both in how we look, what we are doing, and the strengths we have. I think this is a toxic part of society that we live in. We are so often told we aren't good enough, and that is hard. Even this week, I found myself up against, uh, uh, upset again over comparison put on me in the way that I look. But I think this is something, again, we need to learn to do, to know fully and wholly we are, that we are enough because God says we are enough, not because anyone else does. One of my favorite Bible verses that I have to come back to again and again and again to anchor myself. Oh, the suspension. Oh, gosh, it's gone on too long. Um, is in Ephesians 2, verse 10. And it says, For we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Other versions say you are his masterpiece, his handiwork. Those and workmanship are used intentionally. It is not the case that, Christ cl that God clicked his fingers and there you were, another person to populate the planet. No. He spent time crafting you, thinking through the details, picking each part, taking his time. You are no quick, rushed mistake. You are his workmanship. The Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci, Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh, The Colosseum by Roman architects. These are described as masterpieces, as workmanships. People flock to look at them and wonder in awe at their beauty. You are his workmanship, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand. To be content is to know who we are, not by what the world tells us, but by what God does. Finally, I think we learn to be content by expressing gratitude. Let us be people with thankful hearts, able to look at the things the, world, the things the Lord has blessed us with and be grateful for all he has done and continues to do. 
Again, that does not mean we have to be thankful for everything in our lives because we will, there will be hard, tough and brutal things we all have to walk or are currently walking. But finding contentment comes by acknowledging the things we are thankful for, even if they seem smaller, different, less than those around us. I wonder how many times we thank God for our bed or the milk in our fridge or even the job we dislike. And within that, learning to be content also comes from having gratitude for what the Lord has done for others. Let's be people who celebrate what God has given others instead of being envious. And let's look to what we have and think, how can I use this for God? A.W. Tozer, a Christian writer, wrote, Sometimes I go to God and I say, God, if thou dost never answer another prayer while I live on this earth, I will still worship thee as long as I live and in the ages to come for what thou hast done already. God's already put me in so far in debt that if I were to live one million millenniums, I couldn't pay him for what he's done for me. That is my prayer. Will that be the posture of my heart? Through gratitude, through becoming increasingly secure in who God has made us and where he has us, through locking our eyes on and gaining our strength from him, let us learn to be content, defined fully by the one who made us and not by comparing to those around. Shall we stand? We just want to spend a bit of time responding to what the Lord might do. So I just encourage you to close your eyes. It helps reduce distraction to those around us. And we never want to rush this, so we're just going to wait. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we welcome you now. Thank you for the truth that's been shared this morning. But we just want you to come and inhabit our hearts, this space, to have your way. Would you just soften us to you now? This might be new to you, but we love doing this. We... I believe the best thing is to just make space for God because he always wants to meet us he always wants to do something as I was praying this morning the word worthiness came to my mind and I think for some people, there is a real wrestle about your worth. And that will definitely be a comparison thing. For some, maybe it's not. It's just a, I just don't think I'm good enough or can, can reach the mark for God. And I was reminded of this passage in Revelation. It's kind of picture language, if you like. And there's a scroll that needs to be opened. And it says this, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it 
And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll. And then I saw a lamb. And I just feel like God wants to minister over some people this morning that like asking whether we're worthy is the wrong question. We're not worthy. He is worthy. And he loves us. I'm fortunate to have amazing parents. I don't think I've ever asked them if I'm worthy. They just love me. Father, I pray you would minister that in the room right now, that people would know your love. Your unconditional, profound love. Come, Holy Spirit. It's got nothing to do with what we've done. Everything to do with you. And linked to that, as I was preparing, I got a real sense that for some people hearing the phrase that you are a workmanship, like grates against you. There's something within you that just does not believe that. And it may be because of circumstances or your health or I don't know, but I just felt that the Lord was like, just come be with me. I understand that you don't understand, but I want to show you that you are. I really want to show you that you are. And also just a sense that for some people, you just don't feel content. There is a lack of contentment. And there is no judgment from the Lord in that ever. And again, just a sense of him wanting to just meet with you and be a father to you. We're just going to make some space for response in, in a moment. But the final thing is just there's been people before this service, during the service, who've been praying for us. And a number of the things that have been shared, senses people have had from God have kind of lined up. And it's this sense of God being close to us and wanting to do things, that there's just possibilities that are just just within reach if we'll just respond. And one, for instance, was around um, the Holy Spirit wanting to activate gifts. And it's just a moment to step out and, and say, all right, Father, just I, I receive. I receive whatever you've got for me. And another was around um, someone who feels like God is just really, really distant. But that this morning's a morning where he wants to encounter you and he will encounter you. Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description.